0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobhan Xavier and thank you so much for joining me today. In today's episode, we are joined by Mohammed Abdu, who is currently a visiting scholar at Cornell University and an assistant professor of sociology at the American University of Cairo to discuss his new book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances, published by Pluto Press in 2022. The book reimagines the parameters of political Islam and the possibilities of anarchistic interpretation of Islam, an Islamic interpretation of anarchism, which is conceptualized as Anarcha-Islam. The study is methodologically rooted in the hermeneutical tradition of the Quran and draws from radical indigenous, black, and Islamic anarchistic and social movements discourses, as well as BIPOC and queer thought. In outlining the commitments of anarcho-Islam, the book covers topics of non-authoritarian structures of governmentality, non-capitalist approaches to property, and approaches to self-defense of violence. The book will will be of use to scholars who think and teach on Quranic hermeneutics, political Islam, social movements, critical race studies, and decolonial approaches to Islam and Muslim communities. The book is also written particularly for activists on the ground involved in social movements and organizing. In our conversation today, Muhammad and I spoke about the origins or the genesis of the book, his own long career of in activism, which has informed the book, methodological approaches taken in the book, such as Quranic herm- hermeneutics and how that informs his conceptualization of anarchic itzahad and what to take away from the book, especially if you are an activist on the ground. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Muhammad Abdu about Islam and anarchism, relationships and resonances. Hi, Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: Uh, Alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm
0: so excited to talk to you about your new book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances. Um, We have a tradition on our podcast, New Books Islamic Studies, to start with a little bit of an autobiographical note. So I wonder if you could share with us a little bit of what your intellectual journey was and what brought you to this moment to, to write this book and the work that you do.
1: Jazak here uh, once again, Shobana, and I'm very humbled and honored to be with you uh, and on the show. And instead, I'm to all the virtual listeners. in uh, so far as my journey, uh, I'm a self identifying uh, scholar activist and a Muslim center of color on Turtle Island. i uh, been active for about 22 years um, post the anti globalization 1999 uh, movements in Seattle, anti war protests in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also with indigenous struggles like the Mohawks and Pantonego. Uh, uh, over the Colbuson track, um, in which there was a quote unquote dispute with the Canadian government and mining corporations there uh, at the time, uh, as well as with the Zapatistas, uh, indigenous Zapatista movements in Mexico, um, and, um, and the Tahrir uprisings of 2011 2013. Uh, though I obviously have very strong about so what happened in 2013, but really involved in BIPOC liberation and social movements. Uh, 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 particularly insofar as Palestine as well uh, for that period of time. And so far as my intellectual journey, um, uh, I'm a postdoc at Cornell. I'm a visiting scholar at the Naudi Center, uh, particularly the anti-racist social justice program. I'm also an an assistant professor at the American University of Cairo. I did my PhD at Queen's University in cultural studies, interdisciplinary studies on uh, Islam and queer Muslims, Islam, gender and sexuality really. Um but all uh, and my MA and my BA were in sociology at Queens as well. Prior to that I was studying engineering. Um and I grew up uh, really I spent my life within the Swana region. I migrated to Turtle Island when I was about 16 in 1997 98.
0: So so I think a lot of your personal stories really kind of come through in the book and and I wonder if you could say a little bit about like what I mean I your activism obviously has inspired the book, but what prompted mm-hmm. you to writing this particular book? And as you're writing it, did you have a particular audience in mind? Cause I do think it's like written in a particular way that it is, you know, it, it's a call to an action, right? So I'm like also thinking about who you, uh, who you wrote it for.
1: Thank you for raising that point. Um... Uh, as you note, I, I and I heard from Anne Dujin's sister the other day, and and she noted to me that this is a book written for BIPOC people. Um, she doesn't really uh, read white folks into it. Uh, and, you know, flattered and, and humbled as because certainly white people are a part of the audience but they're not the central figuration of the audience within itself um uh, and i seek to distinguish here also whiteness as a phenotype versus cultures of whiteness which even white people have internalized given that we continue to be colonized subjects um insofar as um, um that's insofar as the audience insofar as the uh former part of your question um uh I really saw that there was a great deal that was going on and missing within uh, BIPOC social movements, Uh, particularly from my experience on the ground, uh, there's something for Muslims to learn from quote-unquote anarchists, and uh, there are all kinds of BIPOC anarchists as well. Islam is anarchistic, in my humble opinion, it's anti-authoritarian, it's anti-capitalist, it's feminist upon social justice, and so on and so forth. but, uh, as I said, we have internalized cultures of whiteness. It's the migrant that of color. There are Muslim diaspora, migrants uh, that are engaged in the recolonization, uh, ongoing genocide, land theft, anti-Black, afterlife slavery projects, as Savi Hartman would call it, and so on and so forth. And to me, that goes against the very fundamental, uh, fundamentals and tenets of al-Hijrah, uh, or migration within itself, um, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala permits that, but nonetheless, it's incumbent that one upholds certain ethical, political commitments that inform one's identity, whether you're a Muslim or anarchist or whatever else that may be. So certainly, the activist portion does inform it. So does the scholarly, though, uh, having grown up within the Middle East uh, in a certain undistanced, distanced way, uh, attending Juma prayers. Uh, listening to the plights of the Ummah, um, the Bosnia, I lived the first Gulf War, I was in the United Arab, Arab Emirates at the time, studying Gwishef jilani who was over 100 years old, and he was really the one that taught me the Qur'an. There was a sense that, you know, um, let's say leftist or socialist uh, politics, that social justice was at the very heart, was at the very trunk, uh, was the very foundation uh, of all faiths, let alone Islam. Um, uh, But it also baffles me the extent to which and, and mind you, this is a book, if I may diverge for a moment, and this is a book on language, and this is a book on power, this is a book on land, and uh, the politics of mistranslation, particularly in an Aurelian age where liberalism stole the words and in, in the meanings behind them. What I mean by that is, is just to give an example, is Orientalist Muslims and non-Muslims continue to translate, for instance, Islam as submission. The actual Arabic word for submission is kuduwa. And of course, what submission suggests is this benevolence, you know, uh, capacity to bend the knee with any, without any kind of self-reflection, without any will or joyful uh, choice-filled deliverance. As, I mean, I would do to translate it. So the actual word Islam comes from the root Salama, three-letter roots, which is to hand over to give. But that then becomes based on choice, intellect, and so on. Same thing with anarchism. Anarchism tends to be mistranslated as Falawiya, which means chaos, anarchy, and we see it all the time in the news, right? But the actual Arabic word for it is Nasulawiya, which means without authority. Um, so, so all these elements of of language, of activism, of upbringing, of intellectualism, reading, you know, the pan Africanist, decolonial theories uh, and theorists and, and feminists and so on and so forth from a very young age actually, if and on and otherwise, uh, really culminated up until this moment uh, to understand the psycho-effective violence that BIPOC people have been exposed to and what ties our relations as black indigenous people of color uh, together. I wanted to tell a story. Uh, uh, what is the significance of 1492 in Andalusia, Spain and how Insofar as Muslims and Jews being evicted at the hand of the sword, uh, exiled, forcibly converted, murdered, and so on. And Muslims and Jews being relegated as savages, as heathens, and then indigenous people with the same impetus, uh, conquested conquista, sort of impetus vis-a-vis the Colombian invasions of the America, the setting up of the settler colonial project within Turtle Island, what ties? What ties it when, you know, a third, to a fifth of the transatlantic middle passage slaves were Muslims from West Coast to Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. And there's a great deal of literature, you know, that just surprisingly only been coming out really in the past decade and so on and so forth. But I'm actually glad that it is coming out. Uh, what ties all these struggles together? Um, and how do we connect? How do you connect Black Lives Matter with no Dakota pipelines? How do you connect this with the and the struggle for Palestine and Palestinian liberation? So, uh, and what's Kind of story can we tell, and particularly from a social movement perspective here? So, um, and from an interdisciplinary perspective, albeit from a social movement perspective, how do we mobilize and how do we deal with the ethics of disagreement given between us? Because we do have a lot of conflicts, we do have a lot of stereotypes amongst ourselves, right? And and how do we overcome those internalized uh, micro fascisms, if you will, of the self, given the images, given the stereotypes that we do have of one another?
0: Mm. So, yeah. Um, and I think in, in answering that question, you've also given us a little bit about the main idea or the main thing that you're doing, like an eagle's eye view of the book. Um, and you're relating these two big conceptual ideas, experiences, stories of Islam and anarchy together. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you say a little bit more about that? And I think you're also coming at it from a really unique um, positionality uh, both as you say from the experience of being in Turtle Island and then also in um, um, kind of the regions that you're located, or perhaps in Egypt as well. So there's a lot going on. Um, and the mm-hmm. other thing I really um, was compelled by is that it also feels like this is a hermeneutical project, because your kind of engagement with Arabic and the way in which you're going back to the text, like at the center mm-hmm. of all of this is really the Quran and you interpreting the text. And so I think you could also kind of easily miss that if you just kind of look at the title and think, oh, this is about Islam and anarchy, whereas every single chapter you begin with, you start from specific either um, Arabic terminology or Quranic, um, you know, chapters, verses, and that's from where you tell the story. And folks might not initially get that, right? And so I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about that as a methodological process or how that informed the way that this book came out. Um, Sorry if that was a lot, but I'm also just picking up on some of the threads that you just mentioned as well.
1: Of course, I'll start with the uh, uh, with the latter, perhaps, point, if you don't mind. I, I might need you to um, rephrase the former point, but I'll start with the latter because it is a very, very important point. Um, the book is politi- political theological. It is hermeneutical, like you said. Uh, I came to a realization very, very early on. Uh, as beginning to identify as anarchistic, if you will, given that anarchism tends to be a Eurocentric tradition that emerged at the turns of the 19th, 20th century, etc. And the majority of anarchist circles tend to be white or animated by white folks. Great deal. Uh, no gods, no masters, speaking from a perspective that is uh, immensely, obviously, secular, Christian, Euro-American Christian, and instead to totalize all religions, all spiritualities, as dogmatic, as hierarchical, as authoritarian, and so on and so forth um, uh, obviously uh, uh, I've had elders like Ashanti Austin, who's a former Black Panther and a member of the Black Liberation Army. Uh, He identifies as a panther anarchist. Of course, there are indigenous anarchists. And all different types of interpretations of anarchism and arguably all kinds of different interpretations of Islam. There are more blank spaces on a page than it was written in black. So, you know, otherwise we won't have Marxology and people studying and rereading and reinterpreting Marx over and over again. Right. To include all kinds of bodies that have been... um, Uh, Renegated to the fringes, if you will, um, uh, in the classical Marx. So um... I came to the understanding that any Muslim or non-Muslim will come to me and eventually say, well, show me in the Quran, particularly the Quran, where God says that I need to be an anti-racist or an anti-capitalist or an anti-authoritarian or whatever it may be. And that's a very legitimate question. And mind you, I distinguish between being anti-something in a rhetorical position and actually being able to extract the non-authoritarian, non-capitalist practices or whatever it may be that actually inform one's own intellectual tradition. And so this is where decolonization and certain plays an active role, a material role and a role that's related to land because these practices are related to bodies and by extension, land, of which we're very much a part of uh, their extension of the spirit world of Allah, of creation, and so on and so forth. So um, dealing yes, with the etymology, with her with understandings of, of concepts and of practices becomes something that's important. How can one use the term Islamic State, including Daesh and ISIS itself, that uses and refers to itself as a Islamية, when there is no such thing as a concept of a state within Islam? Um, So that becomes fundamental because if we say that a lot of Orthodox Muslims would like to say, mainstream Muslims would like to say, well, Islam is the solution to everything. Okay, well, in order to apply this Islam, we need to understand the contemporary. Is Islam against capitalism? And can we distinguish between markets and capitalism? Because those are very different types of concepts. Right? Uh, does Islam allow for the ownership of property? And is it the same understanding as the Protestant ethic that informs capitalist understandings of property? Uh, especially when al-mulk belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when all property, not All and everything belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we're accountable for it. So, what are the foundations, the ethical, political, concepts, practices that inform an egalitarian Quran of the oppressed, that inform social justice Islam, that inform really the foundation upon Islam was founded, as I said in a podcast the other day of the Prophet Salem had come and said, well, you need to do this and do that, you need to wear the hijab, no alcohol, no this and that. And we knew for the first 10, 15 years or 12 years of the Prophet Muhammad's mission as a messenger, as a Nabi and as a Prophet, um, uh, that they came out to lay down the foundation of Nauqeet. La ilaha illallah rasulullah. Why? Because it forms an anti-authoritarian social justice parameter by which if you understand that you're only going to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that means you're not going to pledge allegiance to a nation-state, to a leader, to a tribe, to your kin, to nothing whatsoever. Um, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the principles that they command Muslims by. Um, now we can sit down and talk about who and what is Muslim, but that's part of the dilemma and discussion that, again, using the Qur'an actually reveals, because the Qur'an is a very complicated text, as you know. It, it contains lots of parables, lots of metaphors. It contains verses like Surah Al-Hayb or Al-Akhruf Al-Mutaqati'at that nobody knows the meaning of. Surah Al-Baqarah, the chapter of the cow, begins with al Mim. Nobody knows the meaning of those three conjoined letters that form in Arabic words, right? Um, and of course, words change meaning from one verse to another. That all becomes very fundamentally important. So, what does one do when both Arab speakers or non Arab Muslim Arabic speakers? mistranslate and what becomes the danger of mistranslation and what what do we benefit when we go to the roots and what does islam have to say about governance what does it have to say about economics and so on how can that lay the foundation if at all for a different kind of world for a pluriverse kind of world um so yeah especially over the span of 1443 years of history surely there's something to be said there um so yeah, political theology is very vital to this conceptualization, but so are other discourses like feminisms, like uh, settler colonialism, and so on and so forth. The Qur'an is with the lands that you read it with, just as much as Muslim feminists have been telling us, the majority of men that are reading Qur'an are reading it with and from the lens of men. And from whatever it may be, even if they are feminist men, but nonetheless, patriarchy has the capacity to seep into that particular reading. So what do we read it when we read it with a holistic sense of social justice and not one that is merely concerned with gender issues or race issues, but one that seeks to address the conundrum of the world that we live in, uh, in this moment.
0: Mm-hmm. And so in is this the what you're framing as anarchic jihad in the beginning of the kind of the first few chapters, you're setting kind of the parameters around this?
1: Precisely so. Anarchic ijtihad becomes the methodology by which because jihad is the right and the right to reason that any Muslim has, uh, provided that they expend the effort before be, 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 that they struggle with the text. Um And anarchic ijtihad becomes the anarchistic mode of ijtihad in which I'm trying to understand. Well, we live in a world of capitalist nation states. So I want to know what the Quran sensibly will say about questions of authority, let alone the states, because certain questions were also left very open and abstract. Islam does not prescribe a particular mode of governance, it does provide an abstract set of concepts like the ummah, like dawla, but then it focuses on anti authoritarian commitments, for instance, like shura, uh, which is mutual consultation, ijmeah, community consultation census, maslaha, public welfare, ta'akhid, or deification of only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and worship of only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Khulafa in the plural, caretakers, and so on and so forth. All of us are caretakers and are of the land. So, again, what does that mean when Chapters in the Qur'an are titled, you know, the the chapter of the bees, the chapter of Surta sort of Rai, the chapter of thunder, the chapter of the sun, the chapter of the moon. So they're named after creation at the same time. So shouldn't that remind, then, Muslims of a radical, ecological, ecosophic commitment to a crumbling world in which we've ravaged and pillaged uh, non-human life for our own ulterior motives? What does that mean in terms of Gulf monarchies and in terms of you know, natural resources that are extracted that are kept for particular segments of society, elite ethnic segments of society, tribal segments of society. Uh, what does that mean in the context of, you know, the so-called Arab Spring and um, endeavors towards or social justice for all? And why then do we understand or can we understand that the Arab Spring has failed and will continue to fail? Um, so, and how do we institute change? How do we see through a different world Is Mu'mi Abu Jamal, and I, I like to say, and he wisely noted it, a world in which children who come from immortality and are the errors that we shoot towards infinity have a different world uh, in which all our fires are connected. Uh, so, that becomes the, the goal, the mission of the book. What is jihad? What is qiqa? Does Islam really condone violence? What kind of violence? And how does that diverge, how does that intersect with BIPOC traditions that are not necessarily Muslim or coming at it from Muslim perspectives either. Um, So it is an attempt of that way, again, to connect to my kin and to our ancestors and to honor our journey. Why do we have to constantly borrow or appeal to what modernity and civilization has imposed upon us? And obviously that burden always falls upon somebody like me or other Muslim feminists too, that they have to justify, show, explain, um, their own sense of being, their own sense of identity. Well, why should I have to do that if I believe that Islam is inherently feminist? White feminists don't need to do that. They simply advocate for feminism. Um, you know, the only people that don't have to justify their hyphenated American identities are white Americans because they're considered to be the natives of the land. Everybody else is hyphenated, native, black, Muslim American, Asian American, and so on and so forth. That's just really trying to undo language um, and contend with the circulatory dynamics of what is happening within your american societies and non-Euro-American societies, particularly the Swana region, like I said, because I think a lot of what is said is also easily extrapolated to other geographies, obviously beyond Egypt, just as much as I'm not just talking about the U.S. and Canada, So far as being fellow colonial societies, one can hardly say the same with regards to Australia, New Zealand, Israel, and so on and so forth. So, Uh, So, yeah, to do so, I I defer to this methodology referred to as anarchic Ijtihad. I begin to talk about what Ijtihad Involves what it means, uh, because it's not something that's so easy and so blase uh, either. A command of language, you have to know the genealogy of words. You have to do, know the things like isnad, the genealogy of like oral narration and tradition, the revelation of contexts uh, in which certain verses were revealed. Uh, what are the the particulars that particular verses are meant for? Verses we have the more public kind of verses in which we can extract certain things from. What are the what what are the ethics versus the morals, the ethics and so far as what can we or have the liberty to apply in different situations and contexts versus moral victims in general. Thou shall not kill is a moral victim. Of course, Islam, just as many other traditions will say, you know, uh, yeah, one should not kill. Of course, Islam says and carries that message, but then the Quran comes about and asks Muslims and non-Muslims for that matter, you know, well, you know, when you've been driven from your homes, when you've been murdered, when you've been raped, when you've been pillaged and so on and so forth, at a certain point, one also resorts to the right to self-defense as much as that's constrained in certain ethical political parameters we see again this, this is what anarchic jihad allows jihad as we all know means and again there are different forms of jihad the most widely known are the greater jihad uh, uh from which jihad is also related to when you know that the religious reasonings but jihad generally falls in jihad al akbar the struggle with one's own privileges Against one's own microfascius and the smaller jihad in the context of to go to battle. But the actual word for battle, the actual word to go to war is qital in Islam. But you never see that within discourses that, um, be it within mainstream or even intellectually or even at the grassroots, when we're discussing is Islam violent or not, or the context in which it condones and allows for the right to respond, and so on and so forth, and bear arms and so on, according to, again, Cardinal rules of war um, versus situations in which, no, that is not necessary and patience is extolled and so on and so forth. So um, I'll, I'll stop there yeah, for a moment.
0: No. no, I think one of the things that I found really compelling about the book is that it is kind of... Um, a really excellent example of just like the hermeneutical process and what you're modeling for us of how we could do this kind of interpretation. Um, and like kind of the historical legacy of that and what would looks like in in a contemporary moment. And so I think scholars or any listeners who teach courses on, you know, the Quran or chronic hermeneutics, um, you know, and political theology would like really enjoy using this as an important text in their course to kind of model that process because you really outlined it for us. Um, And so I think the subsequent chapters from my understanding, you kind of then go through kind of thematic kind of pillars of what, um, anarchic Islam, you know, what some of these um, the negotiations are, be it with kind of non-authoritarian or relationship with the nation state. Um, one of the chapters, chapter four, for example, real, really is dealing with capitalism and racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. We found this a really interesting chapter, especially the way you deal or are engaging with property and caretaking, which you kind of signaled to a little bit in, in your comments before. Um, and um, so, like, maybe we could process this, like, what does this model that you're really highlighting? And you kind of give us like several things to keep in mind mm-hmm. um, in this chapter four um how are you relating to uh property in this chapter um according to mm-hmm. the title that you're setting up and what is kind of the you know what is the responsibility i guess of, of muslims or human beings in this context of caretaking right especially in when, when we're in like environmental catastrophe as we are at this moment where even the idea of property seems really like Pointless, right? Because the world seems to be on fire. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's where I, what I was kind of projecting onto this chapter as I was reading. I don't yeah. know if that's what you read, you wrote it for, but <laughs> that was kind of what I was reflecting on. But yeah.
1: So um, thank you again. I you know. <clears throat> I obviously fall, and perhaps this is what distinguishes, you know, and what appeals insofar far as anarchisms in relationship to, say, Marxist-Leninisms, if you will, or Marxisms, is, and it's a big philosophical political question, and it has ramifications on social movements, as, as we know. Because if you're starting off from different foundations, therefore, your ultimate strategic goal will vary. So, is capitalism separable from the state? That becomes very fundamental, because if we go by a lot of social movement scholarship, particularly new social movement scholarship, um, indigenous, black, uh, people of color, and there's a lot in a growing number, let alone if we go by history, uh, Ferdinand bordell for instance a lot of our structuralists have argued regarding the inseparability of the nation-state or questions with regards to prop, uh, authority from the questions relating to capitalism and property though the nation-state and capitalism may have different uh, uh short-term animosities or long-term strategic interests will remain the same uh ultimately um and that becomes very central to sitting down because one of the things that I note also in the book is that it's impossible to distinguish or to disentangle an anti-state or an anti-capitalist Islam from what precedes it, which is the anti-authoritarian components. Because we have to understand then what khulafah is, what caretaking is, in order to talk about then caretakers in the context of property. We have to also understand the role of what property is supposed to serve. Um, if we become and we begin from the ontological or epistemological basis that all property belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and all natural resources, as Islam and the Quran explicitly command, belong to all of humanity. They are not to be commodified, materialized. So water, natural resources, let alone that Islam advocates for a very foundational at least basic quality of life, not just standard of living, but real quality of life, in which food, shelter, clothing, basic amenities are provided for, because how are you to be attentive to other matters in life of great value, of great importance, if you're running every single day from 9 to 5 merely to pay your rent, your mortgage, to put your kids in school, and so on and so forth. So Islam came to found that as a foundation. Part of that occurs through, again, a different ontological, epistemological, not only understanding of property, but also then our sense of caretaker. Islam advocates for what is referred to as usul al-mas'uliyat, which means the politics of responsibility, as opposed to a politics of rights, as the state does, because that's the way that the state functions. It's my right versus your rights. No, this al or al maslaha al takes prevalence, as much as the individual autonomy is preserved. So if we're living in the same house, for instance, and I decide to... Uh, paint my room pink. Uh, that is my own individual choice, etc. But if I decide to take down a load-bearing wall, well, sorry, other folks in the House do have a responsibility, as a matter of fact, to call me out and for there to be a process of to deal with those particular kinds of grievances. So property is not implicitly does not implicitly belong to a Muslim or Muslim per se, because number one, they're accountable, number two, they're responsible to the broader community. If I took a piece of land in order to innovate, for instance, a particular project that would benefit the community on it, Islam allows that. With the consent of the community, with an understanding of what that project will be, and without asserting a certain hegemony, because Islam also advocates through Mubarba and Musharraka through a cooperative model of economic political exchange and a dynamic exchange that constantly causes the circulation of power and economics amongst the community within itself. It does that through, for instance, concepts of zakat. Zakah, as we know, is not and is mistranslated as all tax. No, Zakah is the right of the poor over the wealthy. And what is this given, for instance, uh, Muslims are required to hand over those finances or that amount of Zakah to the poor. And they're not just supposed to hand it over, as I was describing the other day. It's supposed to occur without any outside mediation, so no NGOs, no Jamaat, Khairiyah uh, that goes and distributes that money because you're supposed to feel the plight of the poor, you're supposed to have that engagement with them on the streets, you're supposed to look the house that the, 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 the uh, homeless people in the eye, um, as opposed to pretending that they don't exist, and you're supposed to hold out your hand and poor people are supposed to take what belongs to them from your hand, because it is their right. Um, Other concepts, of course, uh, uh, you know, include Ramadan, that very much complement that. These are, insofar as when Muslims fast, abstain from intimacy, uh, drinking uh, water, again, the idea of the plight of the poor, that we see now in Muslim societies, predominantly Muslim societies, particularly in in, in the Swana region, that more is wasted during Ramadan than any other time of the year. So again, it's the conjunction of different ontological, hermeneutical understandings of property with concepts of, okay, for all Khulafa, then what becomes a responsibility if Muhammad abuses a particular property or piece of land that the community has allowed or permitted Muhammad to engage in a particular project with regards to... Then it becomes incumbent on the community, and I lay down these rules. to first, warn Muhammad to try and reason with Muhammad. But if Muhammad exceeds, then it is the right of the community to take that land back, ostensibly uh, because of the abuse of power, because I am employing and, and engaging in indentured servitude, of labor, and so on and so forth. So there are checks and balances, but it's one that the community keeps, and it's the one that the community is able to do so because it is a horizontalist community. Once you begin to organize it vertically, that's when the danger seeps in because Muhammad reaches a particular point of authority or other people that are interested in Muhammad's project that may benefit and gain in our positions of power may want Muhammad to continue on that selfish individualist project because ultimately that feeds into their own sense of nepotism and wealth and exacerbation. So uh, it is a reminder of, in so many ways, humility of um, our as a species and um, and what we owe, uh, the relations that we have, all our relations in life, um, and yeah, how does how does one achieve that? What uh, you know? So yeah, that that becomes really the foundation of of the anti-capitalist or non-capitalist component uh, uh, of the interpretation within itself. Mm. And of course, there are other concepts and practices, perhaps that I I, I did discuss. But yeah,
0: yeah. Insofar so far yeah. as that, yeah. I mean, each chapter is so rich and we're not doing justice to it. So hopefully um, listeners will be compelled to pick up the book and go dive deeper into uh-huh. the chapters. Um, but I'm kind of picking out some thematic um, aspects that came out. I mean, chapter five for me was a really powerful chapter because I think the tone of it was a little bit different in the beginning, uh, partly because we really see your activist life come out in terms of the way you've been exposed. Well, you've been on the front lines, right? Like all the, the mobilizing that you've done, um, and your experience in spaces, um, public spaces um, in terms of the m- movements you've been part of um, and how you've experienced violence. So there was like this auto-ethnographic portion of chapter five that I found really powerful. Um, and you use this really to pivot into this question of armed self-defense of violence, right? And mm-hmm. um, what are kind of the ethical and political principles of war, um, you know, jihad. Um, and so this is really powerful chapter, partly because you're also bringing in this issue of gender and sexuality and masculinity and like what, you know, what is the relationship to violence in that. So can you, you know, I don't know if you want to reflect a little bit about your own experiences that prompted for you to write the chapter the way that you did before we we could talk about some of the the conceptual work that you're doing in this chapter.
1: So, um... That was the most difficult chapter, honestly, to write. I, I, I had, could feel yeah, it. Yeah, I could. It, it was the most challenging chapter to write, um, and perhaps I should have said this uh, from the beginning. The the book is a reincarnation of a skeletal form uh, that I had developed, uh, or that and defended actually in my MA thesis in two thousand and nine. So wow. that's where Anarch Islam first appeared if you will but uh, it was very rudimentary it was an ma thesis so you know um there isn't a discussion of settler colonialism of, of geopolitics of it was really the bare-born of, of gender of sexuality of uh, of the of race and so on and so forth uh, it was what it was on the time and over the past 15 years and with the phd and the events that i witnessed it, it's gone through several incarnations um uh, across or along the way that chapter like i noted was very challenging and is and remains very triggering. I have not really read it uh, since um, I, yeah, had gone through the RAS revisions uh, because immediately I'm drawn back to specifically the in the first eighteen days of the career. Um It's a cry of complaint. It's an elegy. It's a wail, if you will, um, a painful one. Uh, It's trauma. It's also seeking uh, a response. It's seeking healing, uh, as a matter of fact. And it's trying to use both experience, but also as Bell Hook said, theory, because it's a form of liberatory process um, as a means of developing what I refer to as a biodiverse strategy of resistance. So all this discussion of things like, well, you have the, uh, you know, the anti-Black misogynist Gandhi and this fetishization that comes about, well, and says, uh, you know, and and preaches the doctrine of non-violence. Well, Gandhi was also the one that said, if there's violence in our hearts, then it's better to be violent than to don the cloak of non-violence to cover up our impotence. And what kind of non-violence did Indians practice? then one has to go back to events like their Sati Brafa, in which Indians, yeah, engaged in non-violent protests, uh, because over the... The um, uh, the salt taxes that the British were imposing at the time on Indians, but they were willing to be beaten to death. If that's one's understanding of nonviolence, um, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, what about the violence insofar as the sexism, the racism, the ableism, uh, the classism? that we're exposed to every single day. is not that a form of violence. So again, it's desire to unravel words, and their meanings, their structural forms of violence, is their revolutionary, their symbolic uh, violence, and really go through the, again, the etymology of the, this thing called violence and this non-existence of, of, and the metaphorization of non-violence. And even if we go back to Martin, and we begin to think through when we see the transition, um, especially after the march on Washington and his disillusionment with the hallways and corridors of power. Um, And perhaps this is the reason that he was assassinated, the the realization of how nonviolence in so many ways protects the state and how is one to be nonviolent in day and age in which you have going pro, there's distrust within communities, uh, you know, post- Snowden, 9-11 world, the surveillance, the control, um, the dividing and conquering of movements, how the CIA trains, you know, agents, activists, in nonviolence to blunt from the revolutionary potential versus the red and black power movements and how they took control into their own hands in a certain sense. So the Black Panthers didn't wait, so they didn't try and legislate laws or reform this and that. No, they established the free breakfast programs, they took over their neighborhoods, free schools, free hospitals, just as much as the Zapatistas, many many years later would do in 1994 when they declared war on the Mexican state and still continue to and are prepared to arm and defend their neighborhoods, their lands, their people and whoever is allying with with them. Now, of course, there are many faults that we also learn from social movements and we need to be honest and genuine with regards to that equally at the same time. But that becomes something that's very important. Now, I also note that violence is not a strategy. It is is very much a tactic of resistance. And in any movement, to me, foundationally, if a movement is to call itself revolutionary in any kind of sense, there need to be three things. And without which you really don't have a revolutionary movement, merely the fantasy. But Number one, you need to create alternative on the ground, alternative hospitals, schools, because the theory is you either reinvest in the dominant order, try and change things within, which is highly unlikely, and if it changes, it will change for a minority few people, etc. cetera. And it's not necessarily permanent uh, within itself, we see the retraction of the right to abortion, queer marriage, and so many different other things within the settler colonial of this free and democratic America, uh, which many deify around the world. But Or you divest and you build those alternatives with like-minded kin who share ethical political commitments and so on along the way. You build your schools, you build your hospitals, you build your abolitionist transformative justice spaces you're not waiting because simply we don't have the luxury of time um and to assume otherwise is quite arrogant and feeds into the scientific rationalist sort of enlightenment theological sort of understanding of the course of history that we have time to save the earth and so on and so forth <laughs> uh, number two uh, as part of this biodiverse strategy of resistance or constituted regulatory movement, you have to have decolonized education a story again that connects by hot traditions or allies can um, you need to provide alternative forms of knowledge uh, and the mainstreaming of those? There are all kinds of media, be it social media or otherwise, be it actual text, be it artistic forms, uh, and so on. So, but you need to provide an alternative foundation for knowledge for education. Uh, and obviously, here I distinguish between information—not that I, you know, don't have a great deal of respect for some journalists—and uh, but knowledge within itself. So, the knowledge keeping that is involved with that, and of course, that's a crisis within itself because. We know a lot of knowledge keepers, particularly within the Ivy Tower, reproduce a lot of, again, Eurocentric assumptions all the time, including Muslims, of course, including us, right? Um, number three, which uh, is very important, is the preparation for, yeah, our defense, the, the right to defend um, ourselves, our communities, our lands. Um, in our ways of life um so th- that's the chapter it's it's delving into red and black power it's delving obviously into the concept of bitel, of jihad It's beginning to it lays down the rules of war it talks about the context in which the war emerged and the right to self-defense emerged within islam because muslims weren't afforded that right and they were and allah was <laughs> wanted to teach muslims and this is the point of the book you know, when Muslims talk about patience post 9 11 and patience post the destruction of Libya and Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and so on and so forth, look, I'm all for the valorization of sabr and patience. And it's an important skill and tactic. And yes, we are required to embody it. But they don't pay attention to the latter part of Allah Taala's verses insofar as we also reserve the right to self defense, uh, to protect not only ourselves, but our kin. Uh, and that becomes the point, because we cannot sit down and sustain over 500 years of oppression and say, and bask in the hope that America will fulfill its dream. As Malcolm had taught, it can not be both. It can not be an American dream and an American nightmare. It's one or the two. Um, and that's my problem with progressive politics. That's my problem with liberalism that seeps into leftist politics, including mm-hmm. Marxists, anarchists. Um, in general, and I find liberalism to be much more insidious that way. I can deal, as I was telling my students the other day, with Trump. I can deal with conservatives that come about and declare wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that call me an Uncle Tom or that call me, you know, uh, as they would call Arabs and continue to call the Arabs as San Negroes. I can deal with that because that's overt. That's in my face. I can deal with The racism that way. What I can't deal with is the multicultural, benevolent, uh, we love all people of color. I have Black people as friends, I have Muslims as friends, so I can't be a racist or I'm not a racist and I'm an ally. Well, let's push the emblem of that up until we talk about Black liberation, Indigenous liberation, and land back and what that means. Would you really be willing then to forego your rights and begin to fulfill your responsibilities as a settler? And here I'm particularly talking to, you know, all migrants, but particularly settler of color Muslims, uh, when you're going about in the street and you're screaming free, free Palestine. Well, you're a Zionist on stolen land. What are you doing for indigenous struggles and the fact that this land is stolen? What are you doing insofar as Arab supremacy and anti-blackness that exists within Swana communities? Despite the fact that we have black South Asians, we have black Palestinians, and it's a very complicated world. And this is part of the identity politics, right? Is is You know, we have all kinds of narratives. Arabs are slave traders, no different from, uh, you know, uh, the transatlantic slaves. Uh, But then, you know, there's a conflation of what slavery was during the medieval period with contemporary slavery versus, obviously, the Middle Passage experience and the brutality of that. Uh, But we also see Black-on-Black ethnocentrism that plays out not only in the context of uh, the U.S. uh, and Canada, for instance, we also see it insofar as... um, in the context of Palestine, where we have black um, Mizrahi, uh, Sephardic Jews, and again, this is part of the white supremacist Zionist project, um, the people of color and just as much as it exists everywhere it's euro-american manifestation everywhere in terms of that white supremacist project or even within wahhabism uh in saudi arabia but we see a situation instances in which yeah african diasporas jewish diasporas are oppressing and taking the lands of black palestinians and non-black palestinians so you know the internationalization of blackness how that you know how that works when we look at black lives matter right and the protests what 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 um uh roman kelly refers to as sort of the, the black spring uprisings right incredible and inspiring what are they building and i'm all for cathartic acts for direct actions we did in the in fact 99 police stations were burnt down in the but what alternatives have been burnt have been built would it not have been useful to take those 99 police stations and house the homes or squat them? or establish some urban sort of kind of Zapatismo on the community gardens, all kinds of things. So the lack of imagination, and if anything colonialism has stripped that away from us is our ability to redream dangerously, different kinds, borderless worlds, if we all agree that these are arbitrary borders, that divide indigenous land, that divide Swana nations, we have the context of India, and the partition, and India, and Pakistan, and Kashmir, and Bangladesh, and so on and so forth. How do we begin to construct, again, an alternative, pluriverse world, given all that's been internalized by us as individuals and on the micro political level, but at the horizontal level, how, how do we begin to build something differently and that becomes the quest violence is a part of it we're exposed to violence psycho violence that's fanon, and we replicate that violence in reactionary impulses that we have either we become ISIS or al Qaeda. Um, engage in this wanton, impotent kind of violence uh, out of the sense of brutality that we feel, but then we produce the oppression not only amongst ourselves, I mean, the majority of people that suffered because of Al-Qaeda and ISIS are Muslims themselves, it's not Western white people or soldiers, as a matter of fact um Or where we become hyphenated, good, Orientalized citizens that just want to be good Americans, be good Canadians. You know, uh, perhaps become the next, you know, Obama, become the next this or that. Uh, Ilhan Omar, AOC. No disrespect to these women and, and the prejudice that they are exposed to, but it's highly problematic the politics that they're engaged in. Uh, you know, it's a settler colonial society, and again, it's either founded on ongoing genocide, etc or it is an American dream. But you can't have it both the same time but that's part of the violence that Empire is constantly reproducing and that we internalize and we don't really reflect upon that because we'd like to or we want to play according to the rules that our masters, our colonial masters, have laid down. You know, we stick to the curbs. God, heaven forbid that we get onto the roads, engage in snake marches. We need to get our permits before we go and we protest, because heaven forbid. I mean, what could be more than the women's march in which you're protesting, you know, anti-Black police brutality. You're protesting that it's stolen land, but you're on stolen land and you're surrounded by trigger happy cops. Mm. So, you know, yeah, what kind of pinkwashing, what kind of whiteness is seeping into then these kinds of mobilizations? And again, I'm not trying to say that mobilizations are useful. They are, and direct action is important. But that's just the fact. What are we actually building? That becomes the the the, the idea here. And on what foundations are we building what it is that we're building? As mu'minin, as believers in, in a higher sense of justice, if you will. Uh, and not just as as uh, as Muslims within itself. So...
0: Mm, Yeah, that's powerful. And I think this chapter would be so interesting, not only to perhaps scholars who are teaching on social justice movements or um, transnational like um, um, movements, but also to activists, I would imagine, you know, particularly Chapter And as, as I'm thinking about this book and stepping back a little bit, um, do you have any advice for like activists on the ground who are listening to us now and are probably, um, you know, really hearing what you're saying and shifting towards, I love this idea of shifting from tactic to what is the actual goal, what is the aim, what mm-hmm. is the project, right? Um, so, I mean, aside from maybe encouraging them to pick up this book and kind of think through their own politics and think through their own work, what do you think maybe should be the takeaway for activists who are on the ground who are doing this type of work that you're engaging with and for helping them to think differently, perhaps?
1: Well, a lot of Indigenous people have long said, and that's an excellent question. Thank you, Sheldon. A lot of Indigenous people have long said that, you know, voting is not a form of power reduction. When you're voting, you're legitimizing The settler colonial order, and I'm talking particularly here on the context of, well, settler colonial societies, but particularly the U.S. and Canada, Um, and that distinction between a tactic and a strategy, um, Voting at best is a tactic, but at whose expense in terms of erasure does it come? Uh, That becomes a question, and um, if we're lured by Debbie Halland, you know, Indigenous Minister of Interior in the U.S., you know, homeland and so on and so forth, then we really need to start thinking seriously about, to the idols, the kind of righteousness of Puritanical politics that comes to play at the grassroots, because it's also a product of that. Activists tend to be very Puritan. and and I'll call out the anarchists for this, in uh, the way that they operate. Um, They take it as a self-righteous, they internalize this self-righteous martyrdom complex, right, where I need to eat like crap, dress like crap, you know, I, I really need to feel the revolution to my bones. And look, I need to feel and I want to feel the revolution to my bones, but we also have a responsibility to ourselves, and I don't mean that in some narcissistic individualist, you know, hot yoga sort of acts, <laughs> right or little like garden that we grow our tomatoes or fruits without thinking about sharing that with our communities or our kin or our neighbors and and again people whose lands have been dispossessed or people that simply don't have access to food and and uh and so on so the problem with activists it, is. Ideological, they're constrained, they're siloed, they're compartmentalized. But one can say the same thing with regard to academics who claim intersectionality, although they deploy intersectionality in very toothless ways. Um, That's that's a crisis. The the, the crisis is in a post-alternative fact truth world. Uh, We become very entrenched in dogma, in ideological positioning. And one thing that this book is out to rattle is it's not a matter of somebody calling themselves an anarchist or a Muslim that makes them my kin. It's the ethical and political foundations that ought to have informed identities or the inter- or these embraced identities or whatever embraced identities that one chooses. Um, if you're an anarchist who's a misogynist, just as much as you're a Muslim who's a misogynist, you're no kin of mine. And that becomes the idea. If you're a Jewish who's anti-Zionist, then yeah, we have something to build on together. Um... That becomes the question. What is it that we can then move in so far as the limitations of identity politics from a strategic point that way? Because again, identity politics are founded on white ontological and epistemological assumptions within themselves. So, uh, how can we disentangle that and begin to think about the ethics and politics that ought to inform our identities as opposed to some abstract sense of identity? Um, so, yeah, it's not about, you know, particular groupings or ideological positionings, um, as much as it is founding and decolonizing and re-indigenizing vis-a-vis the ethical political commitments that we all believe and form practically, symbolically, materially, um, the labels that we break. Somebody once taught me, actually, an elder, embrace your labels to let go of them. They don't owe you. Uh, what you owe is that label, if you are to take on that label, and we're all a set of conjunctive hands as opposed to just conjunctive I'm a Muslim and an anarchist and a feminist and a lot of things. I don't need to be one thing or the other. Again, that's a binary way of thinking. Um, then what can kind of those identities or those means of belonging speak to insofar as one another? Um, and it's a lens of existence that makes sense, that is coherent and holistic. Uh, so um, so yeah and w- what does islam say islam advocates for a sovereign ummah to reverse ummah that includes again if i' am to go by the machina charter the sultan today we have a particularly the median charter that uh, myth of Medina that saw Muslims, Jews, Christians, uh, uh, Sabians, and so on and so forth as one polity. But what bound this polity together, this umma together? That becomes also the question um, and the search. Uh, and we look over the spans of the medieval period, right? And again, it's, it's and I'm not going to speak to a thousand I mean, I do, but I'm not going to get into any gritty details, but we need to explore and examine that history. Uh, Muslims consisted and organized it themselves for the most part, of course, nepotism fed in and corruption and arrogance and so on and so forth, but they lost the original foundations which Islam laid down to bear as the Prophet was alive. And shortly that got lost as time progressed. Uh, Muslims, when they think about the original polity, after the Prophet's death, they think about either Abu Bakr or Omar or Uthman or Ali. But they don't understand that all these figures, including al-Muhadithat, the wives of the Prophet, women within the Muslim polity, they had complemented one another in character. For instance, um, Umar uh, was known as Al-Farooq uh, the decisive one, because he was very—he came late to Islam and he was—he he experienced this kind of zealous feeling for Islam, right? He was very staunch. He wanted to like be strict insofar as what's right, what's wrong, and so on. Abu Bakr was soft-hearted. He was very gentle, right, in comparison to Umar. Although we see situations in which. Um, Things are reversed or the characteristics are reversed, but generally that was their character. Uthman was known as the Sakhi, you know, someone who's very generous and so far is as well. Ali was the door of knowledge. The Prophet needed all these kinds of different characters to complement his own. In founding that polity, that social just polity. Um, and we begin to see Muslims interpreting, no, you either have to have one Khalifa or the other, a single so-called leader. But Muslims had already internalized that revolutionary anti-authoritarian ethic that they were putting into practice, and that activists need to be putting into practice. Because, you know, I hate this thing when activism, sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded response to this question, but what activists isn't capable of authoritarian tendencies isn't capable or isn't participating in materialist tendencies isn't participating ostensibly in sexist in this that i'm sorry we all participate this is what makes the greater jihad of the fight against our fascism inner fascism is very important. And again, here's a word that's thrown around all the time. This fascist, that fascist, Trump is a fascist. No, Trump was trying to become a totalitarian. And if we read Hannah Arendt's words of totalitarianism, we'd be able to determine the difference between that and fascism. We're all fascists vis-a-vis the asymmetric privileges and power that plays out between us every single day Institutions and the state is not something that is set over and above us. We are the ones that embody the relations, both within and outside the institutions, every single day. And as we learn, we all have power that way. That's why we always even yell out and scream in the streets when we're protesting. All power to the people. Well, if all power is to the people, then we all the people need to understand their power relationships to one another, as opposed to, again, trying to figure out this mediator, or arbiter in this case, the state, to mediate the differences between us. We can do that on our own. Uh, another thing that I believe becomes very important and agreeing about this is how do we resolve our conflicts with one another? The ethics of disagreements are what Islam refers to as ushul al lefty- lefty- left. No two people are going to have their commitments fully aligned with one another, or personalities 100%. That requires that we learn how to deal with, because there are sources and reasons for disagreements that people have. They're ideological, but they also involve elements of the ego, and so on, righteousness, and so on, and so forth. So... And how do we offer hospitality? Or hospitality? how do we actually establish spaces in which we get to know one another and listen to one another and not just hear one another? Because thats I think that's part of the humility or what allows for humility to seep in. Mm-hmm. Knowledge that I didn't presume, that I no longer should presume I own or know the truth of. Uh, we all have facets of the truth. What can we do when we collectively gather those truths together We will be able to achieve a greater understanding of the forest through the trees, but also the trees within themselves, and accomplishing that within itself. So, um, experiences and multiplicity of experiences—that's what I would advise activists to have to really invest. I'm sorry, going to protests in support of women's rights, in support of the anti-war protests in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we see it all the time um, because. And I'll say why this becomes very important. We're in a day and age in which we're experiencing online schizophrenia, where we all are really are schizophrenic. We're shopping around for solidarities everywhere. There's so many causes beyond our ability to coalesce them together. Of course, there is a narrative that coalesces all these causes together. But we're shopping around. This is going on in Kashmir. A third of Pakistan is flooded. Indigenous people are continuing to undergo genocide. Another Black... Man, woman, child, etc., was just assassinated today without impunity by the police, and so on and so forth. Momia is still in prison. It never ends. Asada's is still out there, and they're trying to, you know, bring her back to justice. Where does where does one begin? Where does one end? Um, that requires certainly strategy, but it also requires that. Um, uh, we collectively, not only when we get together, engage in those acts of humility, of solidarity, of affection, uh, that we participate in, but we begin to think what the cost-benefit analysis is from participating in certain strategies over others, um, and the consequence of what all that will ultimately be, and it, again, whose cost, insofar, is the continuation of uh of oppression within itself? I think there was another point that I was out to get, but forgive me, it sort of uh, perhaps got lost in the plethora of uh, of yeah, just dynamic and incredible questions that you've been asking, and um, and, yeah, my responses so.
0: No, that's amazing. And I think that really gets at some of what you're trying to do in this book. Um, I, I'm when I'm read- sorry I did I did I did actually remember if I may interrupt you. what I was about to say is it's it's very often
1: in the case of an activists will show up to protests but they won't involve in invest in the communities itself i'll show up to the anti-war protests in iraq and afghanistan but i'll never visit a mosque i'll right. never talk to muslims and i won't invest in those struggles beyond the superficial oh i'm against islamophobia that's i guess the point that I invest in the communities that you are supposedly standing in solidarity in how many muslim settlers academics or otherwise have visited indigenous nations or territories that are next to them and of course, the response would surprise a lot of folks that not a lot of people have. So sorry to interrupt you, but that was actually my point.
0: Yeah. And an important point as well. Um, is it OK if I read the the last paragraph of your chat? It's weird that I'm reading it to the author, but I think um, in your yes. conclusion, um, Your conclusion chapter is powerful, but the the last chapter, um, the last paragraph of that chapter, I think really just does wonders. And it's a bit of a long paragraph, but I thought I'd read it. I've never done this before, but let's do it anyway. But yeah. Um, Self-determination at a personal level means the ability to choose how to identify one's experience, sovereignty over one's body, and respect for the decisions a person makes over their own lives. This is tied to our communities and process-centered modes of living that generate profoundly different grounded normative conceptualization of nationhood and governmentality. Indeed, ones that are not based on enclosure, authoritarian power, and hierarchy, but rather are anchored in ways of knowing that come from land through practices relating to our modes of intelligence and hence that include water, air, fire, subsoils, plants, animals, and the spiritual world, a peopled cosmos of symbiotically mutually influencing powers. We must undertake a decolonial struggle until, in the creator's good time, a re indigenized plur- a versal umma emerges to found a new world. Indeed, this world is drenched in the seas of beautiful madness that are misunderstood yet worth dying for. Not the madness of asylums, but the madness in each of us, a madness hidden that starves and liberates, a madness of our inner unsettling and undoing, indeed, our own becoming. Affirm your non-being then and become. There's no other way out. What a paragraph. <laughs> thank you
1: this is this is the irony right is is look we have the example of the Muslims they talk about the example of the prophet and the prophet certainly was uh, uh, not in was fallible not in the same way that perhaps because he was a shining example as arguably all prophets and, and and messengers are but we're striving to constantly become to emulate right to embody it's not an easy feat so we're always trying to live up to the identity Muslim, just as much as one is always trying to live up to whatever sense of anarchist, but one never reaches things. So one is always becoming, uh, I, I'm not, how can I be an I when I was a wee within my mother's uh, I, She fed me, she sheltered me, um, you know, I, I, everything was mediated through her. Up until I was born into a world in which I was socialized, inculcated, inoculated with this, yeah, individualist eye that is separated from anything that it can relate to, except in the cordon forms in which it is determined, you're dressed in pink or blue, and these, the, the alienations continue on from there, mm-hmm. absolute, um, we're not avoid compartmentalization that's that's the that's the conclusion right there become and there's there's endless becomings but don't just assume that you're a single being you're an intersection of stars what are those stars and how many stars can we collect Mm -hmm. along the way if we were to see a better sky a better vision of the sky so um so yeah, well, thank you for reading that. I hadn't actually read or heard that last paragraph in in quite some time. Thank you. Yeah,
0: no, as I was um kind of thinking about how to um have a conversation, I was just really struck by this final paragraph, and I think. Um, i really see the book as an invitation to sit at a table and have conversations. And I know the conversations are going to be dissonant because I don't think everybody's going to agree on all of the things of the nation state, of the economics, about capitalism, Mm -hmm. about identity politics, about all of this stuff, right? Um, And I imagine that that was something that was probably scary for you as an author to write, just to put out this invitation, this strong invitation, and to kind of wait at a table and see who shows up and sits with you, right? And I'm sure that's the part where you're at right now, because the book is out. Um, So I hope people take you up on the offer and, you know, sit down and we talk with each other, talk about, you know, about the process and really process the book that you've kind of written out. Um, So I don't know if that feels accurate, that this was really an invitation to your- your communities it
1: is uh it is very much so at its times of peace let me put it that way it's very much an invitation uh yeah in the moments of humility in other moments it's a declaration of war to be quite frank a war that bipoc people have been born into before we've even come to recognize our own names, um, our own traditions, our own practices, uh, knowing who we are or understand how we're complicit in the injustices towards others or oppressed ourselves at war in which I come to recognize the superiority and a manifestation of uh, a white person's skin that I would go about and bleach my own mm-hmm. because of the sense of shame, resentment of Self internalized hate, uh, because I feel a degree of indignity, of disrespect, of which the only way I see superseding or overcoming is to become uh, my master. Um, um, and and that was that was the impetus. Uh, yeah, I, I, that was ostensibly the tone. I, I would, yeah, I, I would like the book, ostensibly, or wrote the book and would have liked it to be received. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I wish you all the best with those uh, conversations that are probably going to come out. And I hope they're fruitful and and I think they're going to be necessary conversations. Um, What can our listeners expect from you in terms of future work? Is there things that you're doing? Is there ways to follow you or follow your work and what you're doing?
1: Well, you can, I, I can, insofar um, as my work, uh, I'm currently working on my second uh, manuscript, revising that, although I had a few articles that were published out of that. Uh, the manuscript obviously was my PhD and it took 10 years to write, so I was interviewing queer feminist Nubians, Sudanese Egyptians, uh, sex work. <laughs> uh-huh trans workers um, uh, and, you know, a gay men in the military, Egyptian military, but also looking at uh, queer feminist Muslims in the context of Turtle Islands and the circulatory dynamics between Islam, gender, sexuality within the framing, if you will, that that is there geopolitically and through the lens of Tahrir, it also involves historical archival research uh, in Al-Azhar University, most preeminent sort the of Islamic uh, institution, arguably in Egypt, if not the world. But uh, the, so I'm revising this uh, manuscript for University Press uh, involved on the ground with our social movements is always being on the land, learning from Black Indigenous people. Uh, Particularly um, working towards abolition and and land back. uh, That's an uncompromisable uh, point that I'm after. Um, And we're trying to organize this speaker series. Hopefully, we're going to be here at Cornell. We're going to start off, well, we started off last year with Dr. Benita Lawrence talking about decolonizing anti racism. Uh, Then we're going to have uh, the next term, uh, inshallah, Dr. Catherine McKittrick, uh, older and old teacher, um, uh, as well as Chandra Prescott Weinstein. We're also hoping to have a panel uh, insofar as Jasper Harsha uh, Harshawalia, um, Jody Bird, Juliana Huxley, Lewis, uh, and, and so many others. Hopefully, along the way, you know. Um, so uh, that's that's ostensibly it for the most part. And and yeah, um, I, I have to say that whatever it is that's good in the book, no book is perfect. Maybe allowed to do so. It comes from what I've learned from my elders, from Black, Indigenous, and people of colour, studies, uh, scholars, activists, um, and whatever shortcomings are mine and I take for responsibility for it, and so far as how to reach me. Uh, I'm available via email, at ma845cornell.edu. You can also uh, catch me, I think uh, my Twitter handle is and G major, M-I-N-U-E-T-I-N-G, uh, M-A-N-U-E-T-I-N-G, uh, G O R or J O R, um, yeah, that's that's about uh, that's about it. So.
0: That's awesome. Well, I'm so grateful that you sat down with me to have this conversation, really kind of pushed, you know, the limits of my own knowledges. And I'm always grateful for all the conversations that we have and really kind of broadening my horizon and welcoming me into your community and spaces and the work that you do and share with me. So I hope um, people pick up the book and read and engage and engage you and really kind of work towards becoming as you've invited us to do. So thank you so much.
1: Jazakallah and thank you very much for your time uh, and your labor in reading this book. Uh, immense gratitude uh, for your solidarity or for your support. Jazakallah khair, and thank you to the listeners as well.
0: And that was my conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I look forward to having you join us again next time. Until then, take good care.